You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Kruger, Brendan, M.D., Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Nikki, Governor Roop, Tobes, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We last visited New England at the outbreak of King William's War, the North American theater of the Nine Years' War. That's what the history books call it, at least, but honestly, this conflict was going to break out regardless of what Louis XIV was doing in the Rhineland. Which isn't to say that the Nine Years' War had nothing to do with what was happening in North America. A state of open warfare between France and England and the Netherlands, and basically the rest of Europe, did make the fighting in North America much more severe. When we left off, the war in America was really heating up. Recall the escalating raids by both French and English forces and their Native American allies. Recall that they culminated in the August 1689 raid on Pimiquid, modern-day Bristol, Maine. The English commander, Major Church, who was sent up to fight off the first French raid with ease, but then who left, who was not there when the French returned with a large force of Wabanaki warriors. And recall the slaughter of the men and boys of Pimiquid, the capture of the women and girls, and a few of the men one of whom escaped to tell a tale of beatings and mass rape and real horror at the hands of the Wabanaki. Now, I believe that this tale happened. I believe that when Major Church returned to Fort Loyal from Boston, he discovered a shocking scene. Bodies littering the landscape. The ground was still wet with blood. The walls were still smoldering. I believe him that it took days to gather and bury all of the dead found there. What I find curious, and really what I've yet to find any good reason for, is Major Church's return to Boston, after the initial French raid. It's, it's an odd move. Now, am I saying, 
you know, Pimiquid was an inside job. Of course not. What I am asking is, you know, qui bono, who benefits here? It is convenient that what appears to be rank incompetence did allow the massacre to happen, and allowed what followed to happen. As you might imagine, the people of Boston were furious. You know, something has to be done here. Retribution must be claimed. And retribution would be claimed. But the means were horrifying. This is episode 184, The Battle of Port Royal. Thus far, all of the fighting that we've talked about has occurred in what we know today as the state of Maine. There was also fighting in contested territory between New York and Canada, but we'll talk about that at a later date. At this point in time, though, Maine was also contested. It was claimed by both the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the French Colony of Acadia. Acadia comprised the Acadian Peninsula, as well as a swath of the mainland that stretched all the way to the St. Lawrence River. Now, the cities of Quebec and Montreal, or Mount Royal, existed at the time on the St. Lawrence, but they were not part of the colony of Acadia. They belonged to the Canada colony. Acadia's capital, really her only city of any real size, was Port Royal. Look at a map and you'll see that Port Royal rested on the bay between the Acadian Peninsula and the Canadian mainland. It had excellent access to the sea and was in a fantastic defensible position. It looked, frankly, not unlike the defenses set up around Port Royal, Jamaica. When Major Church returned to Boston with news of what had happened in Maine, the people were up in arms. You know, actually up in arms. They were ready to go kill some Frenchmen, and Port Royal was the most likely target. They were readying militia forces and preparing an all-out expedition. But then, that's when Jacob Leisler, a German-born merchant and commander in the New York militia, took command of the New York colonial government. Leisler was not appointed by anyone, except, I guess, himself and a bunch of middle-class merchants that were fed up with the rich guys running the show in New York. But this was a moment in New England filled with menace. No one in Boston, or Providence, or anywhere else really, knew exactly how Leisler was going to govern, or what his aims as governor were going to be. Massachusetts held their militia back, just in case. They might have to defend against New York, or who knows, they might be called upon by King William to invade New York. The plans to counterattack the people of Acadia, their plans for retribution, were all put on the back burner for the moment. To the people of Boston and the Massachusetts colony, it looked kind of like those plans had been completely abandoned. Now, we need to remember here that many of those who had been there in Pemiquid, those who had been killed and raped and tortured, some of whom were maybe still alive out there somewhere, those people had family in Boston. Some of those were influential members of the community. Those influential people were vocal about their displeasure. They were angry that their retribution had been postponed. The Massachusetts colony took note of their displeasure. However, they took real note of those who were less influential. The farmers and fishermen who also had family up in Maine, who had been lost... The government noted their 
pitchforks and torches and muskets and soldiers. In an effort to avoid yet another revolution there in Boston, and to keep those angry militiamen busy, the governor in Boston gave his permission for a private counterattack against Acadia. But before all of that, they needed someone to lead this expedition. There were a number of options to choose from. Most were from among those influential and vocal citizens. However, the governor wanted somebody from the government in charge. I mean, that should be obvious, right? You can see the benefits. You've got oversight. And then, of course, you want military experience. But the man chosen by the government of Massachusetts offered neither of those benefits. The oversight we'll get to, but the military experience, well, the man they chose had never served in any military body. He did, however, know Maine. He was from Maine. He had been a shipwright up there at one point. That is, until he talked his way into two separate expeditions to go hunting for La Nuestra Senora. The man chosen to lead this expedition was none other than that silver-tongued provost marshal, William Phipps. But with a leader now in place, what this expedition needed were guns and ships and more men. So where would you, a one-time treasure hunter with a history of employing buccaneers under a pay-for-prey contract, where would you find a host of well-trained, privately armed soldiers that had their own guns and their own ships? I know that you're sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for an answer, so I'll just go ahead and end the suspense. William Phipps turned to a bunch of pirates. There are only a few names I can conclusively give you. William Phipps led the expedition from the deck of a 42-gun, 120-man flagship called Six Friends. That was under a Captain Gregory Sugars. Sugars was one of those influential men who was considered to lead the voyage before Phipps was tacked on. He wasn't a pirate here, he was a Puritan. The other ship really, really worth noting here is the 16-gun Swan. Swan was under a Captain Thomas Griffin, a privateer currently operating out of Bermuda. That little tidbit, though, out of Bermuda, that is an immensely suggestive piece of information. Bermuda is going to be a center of early Pirates of the Round activity. Now at this time, 1689-1690, Bermuda had only been a crown colony for six years. Until 1684, it was under the administration of the Summers Isles Company. And here in its very early days, Bermuda's crown governance was a, it was a wild west. It was rife with corruption and graft and a lot of piracy. Their governor, their brand new governor, a man named Isaac Richer, had the power granted him by the king to issue commissions. And that was a power that he used a lot. In 1690, he granted two men commissions. Well, a lot more than that, but two that we need to concern ourselves with today. The first was Thomas Griffin. But Griffin's partner, I, I guess literally his partner in crime, was George Dew. That's the same George Dew from the Second Pacific Adventure. The same who was there at the definitely real last Council of the Brethren of the Coast. And the same George Dew who presumably got out of Saint-Domingue as fast as possible when it became clear 
that all of the French were getting letters of marque to attack the English. George Dew also had a commission out of Bermuda, and his own ship, but that raises an interesting possibility. A year or so later, in 1691, Thomas Griffin and George Dew will return to Bermuda to renew their commissions, and at that time, they will be in the company of a 70-ton ship called Amity, in the hands of none other than Captain Thomas Two. The probability that Thomas Two was already among their number here in 1690 is high. If Thomas Two was there, we don't know if he was a captain. And if he was a captain, we do know that he was not in command of the Amity. That would come later. However, whether or not Two was there, there's another pirate who was about to become famous that may have been there. The pirate Richard Wunt is less well-known than Captain Kidd or Henry Avery or Thomas Two, but he shouldn't be. I think of Wunt kind of like uh, Pierre Le Picard. You know, he never hit the really big scores and he never gained the infamy that they provided, but he was always there. He was a part of everything. We need to remember the pirate Richard Wunt. And I think he was probably there in 1690 when William Phipps was recruiting privateer ships for the attack on Acadia. But who was not there, of consequence? Well, despite some reports that he was around after the fact, William Kidd was not there. Henry Every was also not there. He was busy serving on a king's ship. More interesting to me, though, is the absence of Bachelor's Delight. George Rayner and his crew were busy. We'll discuss that at another time. For now, though, William Phipps had a force of some 200 Massachusetts militiamen. One frigate, five sloops, barks, and catches, and perhaps as many as 300 privateers to sail them. The usual number given for the invasion force is 446 men. The time for revenge against the French for their depredation against Pemaquid had finally come. The fleet set sail on 28th April, 1690. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. What is to follow will not be a grand battle. The fort there at Port Royal was in the poorest imaginable shape. A few months earlier, in October of 1689, a royal engineer arrived from Paris to begin a renovation of the fort at Port Royal. That's a full year after the Nine Years' War had begun. Hostilities had commenced. But it does kind of make sense from a certain antiquated point of view. Traditionally, October was the end of season for military maneuvers. You know, that's when you had to bring the serfs back from the front to start harvesting crops. It's when you would send in engineers to repair the damage that trebuchets had done to your castle, that kind of thing. But this was 1690. It was not 1345. And the commander there at Port Royal a man named Louis-Alexandre de Freaks de Minaval, well, he knew that this was a bad idea. He was an accomplished military officer in his own right. Minaval served in the last war alongside Marshal General Turin, and actually John Churchill at one point. Minaval wanted to build a new fort on the other side of the bay before they even began to tear down the old one. And considering... Later piratical developments, he was 100% in the right there. But the royal engineer overruled Minival's objections and began work on Fort Royal immediately. Now, if they had managed to finish work in a single season, you know, over the winter, it would have been fantastic. They might have repelled the English with ease. But they couldn't manage it. Repairs were taking far longer than expected. When William Phipps set sail... The fort's defenses just weren't there. The walls of the fort were mostly deconstructed. They they didn't have walls. The guns that would have at one point set atop those walls were on board ships that were also not there. They were out patrolling elsewhere. The fort had, at that time, two dozen muskets. Total, 24 muskets. And the fort was manned by 90 soldiers. When William Phipps and his fleet arrived on the scene, they saw immediately that the French had no chance of putting up a fight. So Phipps raised a flag of parley and sent an emissary ashore. That emissary informed the governor that they must surrender immediately. And Minival, who was no fool, he sent a priest and several advisers to discuss terms of surrender. The terms were total surrender without even a shot being fired. And, you know, what else are you going to do in that situation? They had no other option. The French were to stand down while the English carried off all of the guns and provisions and riches held within. So it's an easy victory, right? Well, yes, but unsatisfying. I mean, imagine this. You are a devout Puritan Bostonian on this voyage in 1690, Your, maybe your sister, used to live in Bristol, Maine with her husband and her two children, and in what you see at least as an unprovoked act of horror, 
Her husband and her sons were killed. Your sister and her daughters were carried off, and your imagination can't handle the thought. And, you know, they're still missing. They're somewhere out there if they're still alive. You don't know what happened to them. Dead, captive, nobody can give you any information. And the culprits of this horror were a host of heathen savages and their French Catholic masters. And now, these Frenchmen, who you believe were certainly behind everything, and, you know, in fact, they were behind everything, what, they just get to surrender? What about the pile of bodies that had been left outside the Fort at Pemiquid? What about the revenge you had been promised? But then there was another point of view. The point of view of those pirates, I'm, I'm sorry, privateers, who had been hired for this voyage. Now, they had no stake, no personal stake in vengeance here, but they had a very large stake in the plunder that had been promised on this expedition. You know, the privateers weren't getting paid. They were promised booty. Everything that Port Royal had to offer had been promised to these men, and then they arrived. There were no cannon. There was no treasure. They had a total of 24 muskets. It's... It's nothing. It's a total bust. And remember here that William Phipps had a reputation. He marooned that crew of buccaneers several years ago on that lonely little Bahamanian island, a crew that he had also promised plunder to and failed to deliver. So irritation, well, anger, rage even, was bubbling up among the Bostonians. And that rage was stoked by the privateers. They saw an opportunity in the justifiable rage of the people of Boston. They tried to convince the people of Boston to disobey orders. But they weren't willing to. They needed something, a provocation, you know, a straw to break the camel's back. It's difficult to say what set the English off here. Reports differ, but... The French would have you believe that all of the English were wild-eyed, heathen, bloodthirsty barbarians. The English, on the other hand, would have you believe that they saw some Frenchmen, illegally in their view, carrying off provisions. That was an act which broke the agreement of surrender, which may or may not have happened, but if it did it might have happened from storehouses that were not to be included in the surrender agreement. The pirates, I keep wanting to call them pirates, the legitimate English soldiers, were permitted to harvest everything from the king's warehouses, but they were not permitted to take anything from those privately owned warehouses. It's possible that if the English did see supplies being carted away, it was from one of those privately owned warehouses. We don't know, and we can't know. Whatever the case, though, it doesn't really change what happened next. What follows looks, well, it looks a lot like a buccaneer raid. You know, Maracaibo or Campeche or any of a dozen other brutal and unforgiving buccaneer actions. Except, well, the English already held the fort. It had been surrendered to them. They didn't have to fight their way in. Sometime in the mid-afternoon, Phipps describes a single, disastrous musket crack. A sound that, 
broke the quiet, pleasant afternoon. Phipps and his other commanders ran to the site of the shot, but within seconds that single disastrous shot had turned into dozens. When Phipps arrived on the scene, all he found were dead Frenchmen, but the English were already on the hunt. They were tracking down every last French soldier in the fort and killing them. The French did attempt to put up a defense, but they didn't have any guns. The English had their twenty-four muskets. Phipps arrived in time to, had he the authority, put an end to that fight. But he did not have the authority. Even if he could have talked his men into laying down their arms, the French weren't going to just surrender again. Phipps felt he had no other choice but to let this play out until all of the soldiers of Port Royal were dead. That's what I mean when I say that William Phipps failed to exert any proper oversight on this mission. But that's just the beginning. Things are about to get a lot worse. Once all the soldiers were dead, the Englishmen left the fort behind and entered into the city of Port Royal proper. Now, Port Royal wasn't huge by standards of the day, but it was sizable, and the English defiled it. Naturally, the church was desecrated. Protestant Englishmen enjoyed destroying Catholic churches, but they were also typically the richest places in town. All of the tithes collected by the church, all of the rents paid to the church, all of that was somewhere within. Not to mention their religious symbols, which were usually forged of precious metals and often encrusted in gemstones. Phipps recalled, quote, We cut down the cross, rifled the church, pulled down the high altar, breaking their images. And then he concludes, quote, They kept gathering plunder, both by land and water, and also underground in their gardens. End quote. Had the Englishmen stopped at the church, it would have been an affront, certainly, but not an atrocity. But, of course, they did not. At first, they focused on the warehouses, the king's warehouses, which they were permitted to sack, and the privately owned warehouses, which they were not. That would cause, well, quite a bit of diplomatic fallout after the fact. But at the moment, they had this haul of beaver pelts and provisions and even a number of treasures from the church. It should have been enough. And that might have been enough from the pirates, the, you know, privateers who were there after plunder. But it wasn't nearly enough for those who were after revenge. The revenge they found was... Well, it's not as bad as it could have been, I suppose. I mean... There was no mass torture, a la Francois Lolonet, but it was bad. They focused on the wealthier parts of town. Eight or ten men would break off into a group and break into a home. There they would kill or subdue any resistance they found. With everybody held captive or dead, they would have their way with the food and the wine and all of the valuables inside, and, if there happened to be any women available, they would have their way with them as well. However, that was reportedly a rare occurrence in this particular sack of Port Royal, largely because most of the women and children had evacuated as soon as the French surrendered. They were rushing, as fast as possible, carrying what valuables and provisions they could 
to Quebec, the closest city of any real size. This, well, England and France were at war. This kind of thing happens in war, right? Well, it does, often, but even by the standards of warfare of the day, this was beyond the pale. It's going to play a role in the days and weeks to come, but first I want to look at the immediate consequences for the English of the raid on Port Royal. They returned to Boston, victorious. You might expect them to return as conquering heroes, but again, their return looks much more like what we see among the buccaneers. They had a hall of riches to show off, a you know, a huge gold cross, piles of gemstones, silver, goblets, and plates, and hard coin. This was a relatively new experience to the people of Massachusetts. Sure, there were beaver and codfish halls every once in a while, but this was a sudden windfall of real wealth. Naturally, the town fathers were concerned about the diplomatic but more immediate military consequences of this raid, but the people of Boston were... Well, they were enjoying this infusion of hard specie. Well, they partied, in what looks a lot like what occasionally happened down in the West Indies. A crew of hard-living rovers blows into town to blow all their money on food and drink and women and gambling. Naturally, the house and the women of ill repute would take a cut of the profits and the economy would just, well, hum along. Every man in town who had access to a ship and a few muskets and maybe an extended family large enough to crew that ship, well, they would think to themselves, you know, I should really invest in a commission. And they did. There was this sudden surge in privateering commissions immediately following the Battle of Port Royal. In part, that was because everyone saw just how much money was to be made. But in part, and... Maybe this has more of an effect. They were at war. And this particular raid shows just how real this war had become. Next time, we're going to look at the next stage in this war, as it manifested itself in Boston and New York and Quebec. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Glass.
Tonight.